0: You're listening to a Cyberwire podcast from N2K Networks, powered by Dragos.
1: It's July 13th, 2022, and you're listening to Control Loop. In today's OT cybersecurity briefing, a cyber attack hits a Ukrainian energy provider. A Chinese speaking threat actor targets building automation systems. An Iranian steel mill suspends production due to a cyber attack. The US TSA issues relaxed pipeline cybersecurity directives. A US cybersecurity bill focuses on training. Ian Frist from Blue Voyant joins us to discuss the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification from the U.S. Department of Defense and what it means for industrial environments. And in the Learning Lab, Robert M. Lee teaches us about the five critical controls for OT cybersecurity. DTECH Group Ukraine's largest private energy firm, an operator of power plants in various parts of Ukraine, disclosed that it's been the victim of a cyber attack. The attack, in CNN's account, had complicated goals. As DTEC put it, it aimed to destabilize the technological processes of its distribution and generation firms, spread propaganda about the company's operations, and to leave Ukrainian consumers without electricity – Hacknet, that's hack with an X, a hacktivist organization that's transparently a GRU front, whatever its denials on Telegram may say, claim to have penetrated DTEC's networks and published some screenshots as coup-counting evidence of its success, but the actual consequences of the operation, if any, remain unclear. Vosvet IT, relying in part on information from Slovakia's National Security Authority, Makes two points that seem to position the incident in the larger context of both lawfare and kinetic combat. They say these cyber attacks on the consortium occurred just days after Renat Akhmetov, one of the richest men in Ukraine and a shareholder of DTEC, sued Russia at the European Court of Human Rights for causing billions in damages to his assets. And they also occurred at about the same time. Russian forces shelled a DTEC power plant in Krivi-ri, a mining and industrial city in the Dnipro region. Researchers at Kaspersky warn that a Chinese-speaking threat actor has used the shadow pad backdoor to target industrial control systems in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Malaysia. The threat actor exploited the proxy logon vulnerability in Microsoft Exchange server to gain initial access. The researchers say, in mid-October 2021, Kaspersky ICS CERT experts discovered an active shadow pad backdoor that affected a number of industrial control systems in Pakistan, specifically engineering computers in building automation systems that are part of a telecom company's infrastructure. A further analysis of the attack revealed other organizations affected by it, manufacturing and telecommunications companies in Pakistan, a telecommunications company in Afghanistan, and a logistics and transport organization, a port, in Malaysia. Apparently, the wave of attacks uncovered by the experts began in March 2021. The researchers add, Although the final goals of the attack remain unknown, the attackers are most likely interested in gathering information. We strongly believe that those systems themselves could be a valuable source of highly confidential information. Additionally, we believe there is a chance that they also provide attackers with a back door to other more strictly secured infrastructure. Kaspersky observed minor links to the Chinese APT hafnium, but they don't believe these are sufficient enough to make a confident attribution. A cyber attack hit one of Iran's major steel companies, forcing it briefly to halt production, Security Week reports. The attack struck the state-owned Khuzestan Steel Company and two other major steel producers. An anonymous hacking group, Predatory Sparrow in the Jerusalem Post's translation, has claimed responsibility for the attack, saying that it was done to target the aggression of the Islamic Republic. The group shared alleged closed-circuit footage from the Khuzestan Steel Company in which a piece of heavy machinery on a steel billet production line malfunctioned and caused a fire. The CEO of Kuzistan Steel, Amin Ebrahimi, claimed that the attack was thwarted, saying, "'Fortunately, with time and awareness, the attack was unsuccessful,' and noting that everything could be expected to return to normal within a week. Neither of the other steel producers targeted in the attack noted damage or production issues." Predatory Sparrow has been heard from before, CyberScoop observes, notably in 2021's wiper attacks against Iran's rail system, and Checkpoint has obtained samples from the most recent incident that link it to the earlier attack. Relatively little is known about the group, beyond, that is, their self-presentation as hacktivists opposed to the Islamic Republic. A report from the Capgemini Research Institute found that only 6% of smart factory organizations have established mature practices of cybersecurity. The report says, We found organizations in general to be inadequately prepared in terms of awareness, governance, protection, detection, and resilience. Our analysis indicates that governance is a particular area of concern, with this area demonstrating the lowest level of preparedness across multiple parameters— Response preparedness is also strikingly low. Fifty-four percent of executives say they don't have or do not know whether they have a team dedicated to preparing for and responding to cyber attacks at their organization's smart factories. After last year's unprecedented colonial pipeline attack, the U.S. Transportation Security Administration responded by issuing a set of strict cybersecurity directives for pipelines and other surface transportation industries. The first-of-their-kind directives received pushback from companies and industry lobbyists, who felt that the rules, written in the heat of the moment, were too extreme and could disrupt business operations. Now, the TSA has released updated, less stringent directives, that industry experts say could indicate how the administration plans to write permanent rules going forward. One revised directive allows designated pipeline operators a full 24 hours to report an attack, twice the time allotted in the original rules. An update to a second directive is expected to be less stringent about required security measures, like multi-factor authentication, password reset requirements, which work in traditional business settings but would prove nearly impossible for pipelines' more complicated systems. TSA says they consulted with industry and government partners in drafting the new rules, explaining, The goal is to move to a performance-based model that will enhance security and provide the flexibility needed to ensure cybersecurity advances with improvements in technology. Suzanne Lemieux Director of Operations Security and Emergency Response Policy at the American Petroleum Institute, told the Wall Street Journal, We're encouraged by the changes they've made. There were a lot of things that weren't well thought out in the urgency of getting this out last year. The U.S. House of Representatives passed the Industrial Control Systems Cybersecurity Training Act, a cybersecurity bill introduced in May, Aimed at strengthening U.S. cybersecurity protections after a government issued warning back in April about Russia linked malware targeting industrial processes. Security Week reports that the legislation would amend the Homeland Security Act of 2002 to allow the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency to create a free training program both for government agencies and the private sector. It would focus on cyber defense strategies for industrial control systems. Representative Eric Swalwell, a Democrat from California's 15th District, who introduced the bill, explained With the increased threat of Russian cyber attacks, we must be cognizant of cyber warfare from state sponsored actors. This bill would help train our information technology professionals in the federal government, national laboratories, and private sector to better defend against damaging foreign attacks c 4 isrnet has a summary of the 8th annual Cyber Yankee exercise held by New England National Guard teams last month. The exercise is meant to simulate the National Guard's response to a cyber attack against a critical infrastructure organization. Lt. Col. Ryan Miller of the Connecticut National Guard said, They will be paired up with mission partners from Water, Electrical and Gas Pipeline, and they're going to be defending those networks, or responding to an already compromised network. Connecticut National Guard Staff Sergeant John Young stated, Cyber Yankee is an exercise that helps cyber operators develop experience in the field. What you get is the ability for cyber operators to see what kind of threats are out there, how they can mitigate those threats in a cyber environment, as well as getting experience collaborating with industry partners in critical fields for not just Connecticut, but other states. It's interesting and heartening to see a National Guard role in the cyber protection of utilities. We hope they learned valuable lessons from Cyber Yankee. Ian Frist is Director of Proactive Services at Blue Voyant. I caught up with him at the recent SANS ICS Security Conference in Orlando for his insights on industrial infrastructure and the defense industrial base. So um, we're going to be focusing on CMMC and what that means for ICS environments. Can we just start off with the maybe uh, demystify some of the acronyms and so on and so forth. Yeah. (laughs) Could you give us a little bit of the background, what CMMC is and where did it come from?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, CMMC is the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification. Um, And it was announced in 2020 by the Department of Defense as a way to validate the security of their suppliers, specifically the security of suppliers that were processing, storing, or transmitting controlled unclassified information, or CUI, um, I won't call it Cooey. I just <laughs> <laughs> you just can't bring yourself can't to do, do that. It. I can't Fair bring enough. myself to do it. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and, and it was it's really built off of NIST 80171. So a little history lesson. Starting back in 2017, contractors were required to meet NIST 80171 to accept go- uh, defense department, you know, um, contracts. Mm. But they only had to raise their hand and say, "Hey, I meet this." Right. I see. So. CMMC evolved out of that to say, we want to add a third-party assessment into this process to validate you're actually meeting the requirements we're asking you to. Now, it grew through some changes. 1.x, they added 20 additional controls and some more levels. They since rolled that back to just the 110 controls in this day, 171. And it it adds that third-party assessment. They had an interim rule right now where you have to upload your score to 171. But the the whole idea is to get that third-party assessment as part of it. And so what does that mean on a
1: practical level? First of all, who's the third party?
0: Yeah, so uh, that's, that's a good point. So the third party being the CMMC accreditation body, right? Okay. So DOD, um, you know, obviously they do all the rulemaking, they pass the law, they set the standard, right. you know, well, Congress passes the law, right? But they, that, that's all driven from DOD. Yeah. And they, uh, the CMMC accreditation body is an independent body that administers the CMMC process. So, under the accreditation body, you have, you know, kind of two sets of groups. You have the consulting side, which are your registered provider organizations or RPOs, and your registered practitioners or RPs, which work under those RPOs. And then you have the assessment side, which are your certified third-party assessment organizations, C3PAOs, and then your certified assessors and CMMC certified practitioners um, or professionals, sorry. And that's... uh, That's kind of the two sides under CMMC. So the C3 PAOs are who will actually carry out the assessments using certified assessors once we have enough certified assessors. Right now, there are provisional assessors, like I'm a provisional assessor, provisional instructor. Um, So that's who will carry it out. Now, the interesting piece of all this is the contractor is required to pay for the assessment. Hmm. So if you're a DIB member and you process, store, transmit CUI and you see CMMC in your contract, you have to go out, talk to some C3 PAOs. There's not a set price. And then tell them you know you talk about scope and size of organization and how many sites and can and you shop around you can shop around <laughs> okay. right you can shop around so <laughs> the idea is they they're, they're really hoping for that open market to level itself out right okay. yeah. but there's going to be expense there and that's one of the concerns with DOD that they're trying to figure out is how do we make this affordable for small contractors right because oh. The Dib is full from companies that make massive manufacturing facilities that make, you know, tanks or, you know, jet fighters. Right, Dib is
1: Defense Industrial Base. Defense Industrial Base, yeah. Just checking.
0: Yeah, Yeah, the acronyms are everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) So... um, Uh, So the defense industrial base is full of big contractors, right? They have these big primes, but they also have all these suppliers that feed into those primes and they might make a bolt for the F-35, right? Right. And maybe that bolt is so specialized, it's controlled on classified information. So that small machine shop now might have to meet CMMC. I see. So that's kind of the scope of it. The numbers that have been thrown around, they've said as many as 320,000 members of the DIB And they expect, I think the last number I saw was 86,000 to need assessed. So that's a lot of companies, um, especially since there's only five C3PAOs right now. How does this affect the folks in the ICS world? Yeah, so that's that's the really interesting piece. And what's, what's interesting about that is in, under the old version of CMMC, there was no clarification about it. So we spent a lot of time, you know, when I was consulting, trying to figure out, does that PLC, process story transmit CUI, right? That's difficult, right? Looking at that data, trying to figure out if it's aggregated enough to be CUI, working with their engineers and their experts. Well, when they rolled CMMC 2.0, they released a scoping guide and they included a category of specialized assets which includes IoT, OT, ICS systems. It also includes test systems and government-owned systems. And what they said was, assessment-wise, you're going to be assessed against one control. You have to have a system security plan. But as a contractor, your responsibilities going into it are you have to list it on your asset inventory, every one of those assets. You have to have it on your network diagram. And you, uh, you have to show that you're you pick security controls utilizing your risk management process, not that you just picked them out of the air. So that means you have to have a risk management process right. and you have to use it and show you've used it, right? Okay. So that's, that's a, those are fundamental cybersecurity functions. Right, but they're hard to do in ICS sometimes. You know, I got a chuckle yesterday when I was talking. I said, Everybody in here is an asset inventory, right? And, you know, of course, everybody laughed because we know in manufacturing that's not true. Okay. Right. There's a lot of companies that have been running, you know, they turn on the hand grenade line in the morning and they turn it off in the evening. And it's been making hand grenade lines and it, it got updated after the Gulf War sometime, but really it's been making hand grenades since World War II. Right. Right. So those systems you know, they got updated, they're, they're connected, right? They're industrial control systems, but nobody's looked at them in a while. They don't have accurate inventories, they don't have accurate network diagrams. So they've, they've really, what they've done is they've said, you've got to do these fundamentals. They're, they're pushing companies to do the fundamentals, which is great, right? To have that basic thing done, have that asset inventory, have that network diagram. And it's good for a lot of ICS folks because it's usually funding and time that's stopping them from doing that, right? Yeah. Everybody knows they need to do that, but... You know, having that leadership buy-in to get the funding to buy the tool to do the asset inventory to help you do the network map, right? So, now you have a compliance regulation that you can lean on to take back to leadership and say, hey, to meet it, we've got to do this. And I, I think that's going to be really helpful. Hmm. Um, I'm also really excited that they're allowing companies to develop their own risk management process and use that to uh, identify appropriate controls rather than just checking boxes on random controls that may not fit the OT, they're saying, no, you define what risk is acceptable for you, and then, you know, you meet that risk, right? You get to decide what controls to put in place to make the risk to be an acceptable level.
1: Is there a part of the plan, uh, uh, a
0: standard for measuring success? So on the risk management side, yeah. and like ICS, not, not that they've released yet. Okay. I... I I'd have to look at my crystal ball now, right? Yeah, yeah. Because because I'm not officially with DoD, you know, I don't... But I think that that will mature with time. Uh I think NIST 800-171, they've said CMMC is going to follow that. So as it gets revved, as they add requirements, as they add things in the NIST 800-171, they might add some more brackets for the OT, the ICS. Um, but that may also depend on how successful this is, right? Mm-hmm. If assessors go out and it looks like companies are doing the right thing and they're following risk management, and they're using appropriate risk management, they may say, hey, we can, we can just let them go because they're doing, you know, what's relevant. So I don't know where that's going to end up. I could imagine where they add a few more things in, right? Maybe they said, okay, we said asset inventory network diagram, but now we want to add in like, you know, micro segmentation or something like that, right? Like your ICS network has to be segmented from your IT network or something. But um, nothing yet, nothing firm.
1: I see. Is there a sense that this has been, I don't know, adequately collaborative, that there's been, you know, uh, input from industry to, to make,
0: this isn't just coming down from on high. So that, there was a lot of feedback after 1.x that it had just come down from on high, right? Okay. That the that academia and the government had gotten together and written the standard and everybody was like, whoa, it's too much. Right. right?
1: Meanwhile, back in the real world.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's, so they, they removed those twenty extra controls, they scoped it back, you know, they've they've released some clarification. And and there is a lot of work. There are a lot of different organizations within the ecosystem working to be that advocate, right? There are different, you know, um Things working with the CMMCAB to, to work on assessment processes and uh, accepted frameworks and things like that. So they are pushing towards that ecosystem, and it does feel like an ecosystem because it's a small group, right? I think there's mm-hmm. only 250 provisional assessors right now, and less than 70 provisional instructors. Okay. So it's a it's a small group right now, and it, I. I um, you know, DOD is very involved in the process. They they show up to CMC town halls, they've they've been pretty open. Yeah. So I do feel that they're listening to feedback. Um as we know, I mean it it's nothing happens overnight, right? right, and, right. and there's there's always people that seem a little frustrated that it's not changing fast enough, but I, I think absolutely they're listening to the to the industry.
1: What is the message that you're putting out to people in term is are we at the stage where it's you know don't panic. You know, we got this. There's people, the resources are here. We're going to help everybody. We're going to help you through this. Or, you know, you're out making presentations about this. What's the word you're spreading?
0: So um, I'll, I'll steal this from Rob Lee. I heard it at a conference uh, years ago when he said it. And he said, Pedal Hope. Um, and I've always kind of held to that uh, yeah. even before I heard it. So I'm I'm always trying to say, hey, don't panic. We can work through this, right? Um, Because I think it's much more helpful. Uh It it is coming, right? March, 2023, they think rulemaking will be complete for the interim rule. And they expect this to be in contracts next summer. So it's coming and it's coming quickly and it takes time to prepare. But no, I'm absolutely trying to spread the message that, hey, this is coming. We need to be prepared. And here are some things you can do to help you get prepared. And also that it's a good thing, right? That this, Hmm. that, regulation isn't always scary. The fact that especially for industrial control systems, you know, this is bringing some regulation into manufacturing, it's giving you a lever to free up those budgetary constraints and it's allowing you to use a mature process like a well-developed risk management, you know, plan and procedure to decide what controls to implement. Those are all good things, right? So that's, that's kind of the message I'm trying to have people take away is that it is coming, you know, we do need to work towards it, but it's a good thing it's coming.
1: For the folks out there who might be scratching their head and maybe feeling a little overwhelmed by this, where do you recommend they begin? Where's, where's a good place to get started?
0: So uh, you can always go to the CMMCAB website. Um, I think it's cmmcab.org. Yeah. Uh, I'll have to look. But, um, you know, you can start there. Always free to reach out to Blue Voyant, you know, come to the website. But if you go to the CMMCAB, there is a whole marketplace of registered provider organizations, C3PAOs, and they've at least been vetted by the CMMCAB as being reputable, right? They've right, gone through right. that process. C3PAOs have gone through a whole much more strenuous process, been assessed against CMMC and everything else. But um, go out there, you know, and, and be in the community. Look around on LinkedIn, follow hashtag CMMC, things like that. There are resources out there. There are um, even Reddit. There are some, actually some really great Reddit threads on yeah. CMMC. But start with the CMMC AB website. You know, look on there. Look on the marketplace. Like I said, we're always happy to help. You know, we, can, we can do a call to, to talk about where you're at, what you need, that kind of thing.
1: All right. Well, Ian Frist, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Robert M. Lee is CEO of Dragos, and he joins us with this edition of The Learning Lab.
2: Today, I wanted to talk about the five critical controls for industrial control systems. And this is something that I'm working on over at the Sands Institute. It's something that's informed from the Dragos year in review. So it's it's all based on real insights, right? It's not theory. It's not, hey, I had an idea. It's off of real instant response cases, real assessments, real uh, work across our customer environments. But realistically, these are the five things you kind of naturally come to anyways. I look at them as being intel-driven. If you take all the different case studies out there of threats that we're responding to and dealing with, what does it really boil down to that you need to do well? I kind of flippantly say that these are the five things you got to do for national security risk. If you want to do anything beyond that for business risk, feel free. But if you're not doing these five things, you're probably deficient. And uh, these are the five things that uh, I wouldn't, this is probably overly flippant, but I I wouldn't want to be in a position testifying in front of Congress uh, without having done these five things uh, in a major attack. These are the ones that are just kind of common sense things based off the attacks and incidents we've seen. But we're doing over at the Sands Institute, Uh, Tim Conway and I, are writing the paper on it, it's pretty much done, but we will probably uh, (laughs) iterate on it for a while and obsess about it before we release it, Uh, but then you'll see quite a bit out of it come out of the Sands Institute, the classes and and so forth. But anyways, without further ado, uh, these five. So the idea behind it is, what are the things that we have to do based on the requirements that we're trying to drive as a business, and then map it to a framework or standard? And right now, what I see a lot of people make mistakes in is they'll pick up a NIST cybersecurity framework or a 62443 or a NERC SIP or whatever, and they'll drive their security program by that standard. But that standard is really there as a lexicon in the same way that MITRE ATT&CK for ICS is. It's a lexicon, it's not a bingo card. It's not go do everything, it's here's a common language um, to be able to talk to your peers across the company and between the industry. So you should do the controls and then map the output of them to a standard, not vice versa. And and the way the the controls start, yeah, the first control is ICS-specific incident response plan. And what I've seen throughout my career is that folks will first start with, let's think about our architecture and endpoint protection and patching and, and all these things around our systems. And then eventually we'll get a detection program to try to detect threats, and then eventually maybe we'll, we'll respond to threats and, and we'll try to figure it out then. And what happens if you start that way, you don't necessarily get all the things that you're going to need during the instant response. So let's, let's hypothetically say that you have 20 requirements out of an instant response, ranging from operations requirements to regulatory, to security, to compliance, to legal, to whatever. You got let's say, 20 requirements coming out of the instant response, just a made-up number. If you don't design for the incident, on average, you're answering two or three of those questions. But if you design for the incident and then kind of reverse engineer your way into it, you're answering 18 or 19 of them. Like you're always going to miss something, but you're making sure the data and the collection and the insights that you have are are supporting what is going to be the worst day for you, which is your incident. And so, you know, again, shortly stated, We we take a lot of incident response cases where people have done good security work, but it's all just disjointed. So the idea is start with the incident response planning first and reverse engineer what do you need out of your environment, your architecture, defense program, all these things to be able to support you in an incident, to be able to answer those critical questions, to make sure you have the right data stored for the right amount of times from the right locations, that you have the detections that actually get you to the incident. Kind of all those things. That first control is so critical because it really sets the theme for every other control. And it's where you should be deciding what scenarios you want to deal with. As an example, let's say you're a power company and you didn't prepare for China, Iran, and Russia teaming up to form a superpower to come at you. Who cares? It's never happened before. It's not a big deal. Like If you get punched in the face by three state actors teaming up to come after you, everyone's going to be like yeah no kidding right i still think you can defend against it but everyone's going to look at you and go yeah that makes sense like you you couldn't prepare for that that makes sense but if you're a power company and you're not prepared for ransomware across your operations environment or the ukraine 2015 power outage scenario or ukraine 2016 power outage scenario everyone's going to look at you and go dude what like these are three well-known scenarios they're in your industry what do you mean you didn't prepare for them and so I think you have a responsibility to the community and you have a responsibility to the people that your critical infrastructure serves and your shareholders to make sure that the knowns are covered. Too often we see people go, I want to know the unknown unknowns. Like, dude, just start with the knowns and a lot of the things that you cover in the knowns will help you in those unknown scenarios. So anyways, long story short, instant response plan for ICS specifically is number one, but that should set the scenarios. Those scenarios are going to be things that you can brief up to the board brief down to operations, brief down to security operations personnel, of here are the scenarios we want to be prepared against. And the scenarios really harken back to like a safety culture and kind of process hazard analysis or HAZOP scenarios. It's very focused on what an engineering mindset would be anyways. You can use the ICS cyber kill chain to think about those scenarios as well. And it just really creates alignment. Do I want every security operations analyst triaging every possible alert? No, that's silly. But do I want to know what tactics and, and techniques align with the scenarios that I care most about as an organization so that I can create the runbooks off of them and all the processes to make sure that when those things happen that we're paying special attention to them? Of course. Anyways, so I get that first control done. I can do things like tabletop exercises and, and other things in that control, but really it's what are the scenarios with alignment across the company with an instant response plan specific to them. The second control then is a defensible architecture. It's not defended, it's not secure. I hate when vendors come out and go, this is a secure product. No, it's not. It's a defensible product, it's a defensible architecture, but adding the human component is what makes it defended. Okay. So what is a defensible architecture? Well, it's going to depend on your industry in that scenario. If I come up with a scenario against ransomware, which every industry at this point should have across your operations environment, you're going to find things like segmentation is important. You're going to find things like Having IT and OT share an Active Directory server is not helpful. The ransomware commonly compromises Active Directory and then populates that thing like a highway to death, a you know, highway to hell just across the organization. So let's make sure that we separate out those eighty environments, especially in the critical sites. Uh, I might find pretty commonly that my instant response requirements have things that depend in ICS on that systems of systems. A lot of IT is system analysis and data analysis. A lot of ICS is systems of systems and physics. So if I want to understand that the logic has been changed in a controller, I'm not doing that with host-based analysis. I'm doing that with network, systems of systems. I need to see the network interactions. So I want to see span ports uh, or tap infrastructure in a defensible architecture as an example uh, from that second control, depending on my scenario. Uh, So I'm going to pick out those scenarios and control one and have plans against them. That's going to drive what I need out of my defensible architecture. That defensible architecture is going to reduce as much risk as I can, reasonably, while enabling me to add humans in to defend. That gets me into my third control, which in ICS is going to be ICS network monitoring. Uh, And so that's going to be all the variety of different ICS visibility products out there. Pick your one that works best for you. The the point, though, is can I see system-to-system interaction? Can I understand what's happening inside the protocols of ICS traffic? whether it's a VNet protocol from Yokogawa, Modbus TCP as a common protocol, OPC for a historian. What's that systems of systems interaction? Can I identify that an engineer workstation changed the logic of a controller across the network? You know That, that type of system and system analysis. The benefit of, of that category anyways is that that control is going to give you everything from asset inventory to go reinforce that defensible architecture. It's going to give you vulnerability identification in any of your modern products. And more importantly, it's going to get you the detections that you need. So it's kind of it reinforcing control two and making sure that your prevention controls don't atrophy over time. And it's also making sure we can even get to the incident by having the right detections in place, especially those tactics and techniques and procedures of those adversaries and the scenarios we care most about. The fourth control is going to be a classic IT control, secure remote access. And um, For most considerations, there won't be huge ICS differences. There are some um, but in most cases, we'll, we'll we'll push for multi-factor authentication, especially for remote sessions where we can get it, like a OEM or integrator or maintenance personnel coming in to remote into the site. I want to put them on multi-factor authentication. If it can't be supported, then I'll go back and put compensating controls in my defensible architecture and try to have things like jump host or extra monitoring or so forth around those accesses. Either way, I need to identify where those accesses are, so I want that visibility and insights from that uh, control three first. I need to understand what my architecture is from that control two, and then I'm going and applying secure remote access where I can. And then the last control is a key vulnerability management program. A lot of folks come into ICS environments and they look at it and go, oh my gosh, it's Windows XP or Windows 7 and oh, it's so vulnerable. That's a very system view. I'm not saying we can't fix those things, but what is the risk that we're trying to reduce here? What are we trying to solve for? Again, go back to that critical and control one. What do we need out of this? Which should inform what vulnerabilities actually matter. Uh, When we at Dragos look at our year review reports, uh, we go through every single vulnerability each year on the Intel team, and we just think about which ones actually add extra risk into the environment. So something that is either being exploited by adversaries currently, or is introducing new functionality into the industrial environment that is risky. So in other words, if there's a vulnerability that allows me to modify the logic of a controller from an engineer workstation, I'd roll my eyes because that's the whole point of the engineer workstation. I don't need the vulnerability to do that. There's a lot of native functionality in the environment that makes a lot of vulnerabilities useless. But what are the ones that are adding new functionality that it's risky or are actively being exploited? And when you look at that, on average it's about 4%. So what's like the 4% of, I don't know, say 20 but what's around the 4% of vulnerabilities you should actually care about? Where are they located? And let's go address them. And that can also get into things like software bill materials where... I don't just want to know that Honeywell disclosed a vulnerability, I want to know that three other OEMs also had it and didn't disclose it because they didn't know about it. Because maybe it was like the pipe dream malware and taking advantage of the CODIS software. So ICS Instant Response Plan, that's going to set the requirements for the rest of the program and alignment across the company, which is usually missing on what are we trying to solve for. Then gets to Control 2 on defensible architecture, which is defined by what we need the architecture to support in that incident as well as helping reduce the risk of it. Control three is that ICS network monitoring or network security monitoring, that visibility and system to systems analysis. Control four is that uh, secure remote access, very often multi-factor authentication. And control five is the key vulnerability management program. And again, there's a lot of people out there like, but well, you didn't say anything about antivirus or this or that or the other. Like there's a lot of controls we're leaving off because these are the five that you would would manifest in the various instances we've seen. These are the five that are most important for you. I'm not saying that other things won't return value. You should go have business discussions on the rest of things and figure out what makes sense for you based on your business risk. But those five are pretty unalienable in the sense that you, you really need to be doing those five. And those, that's why we're making them the critical controls. That's why you'll see white paper come out from stands. You'll start seeing our courses and you'll start seeing reinforced around the community. And there's a number of governments around the world I've already talked to that are, are going to work on amplifying and reinforcing as well because it's just common sense in terms of preparing us for those things that we worry about most.
1: That's Robert M. Lee from Dragos. And that's Control loop brought to you by the Cyberwire and powered by Dragos. For links to all of today's stories, check out our show notes at the cyberwire.com. Sound design for this show is done by Elliot Peltzman with mixing by Trey Hester. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our Drago's producers are Joanne Roche and Mark Urban. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.